Welcome to Waves of Change podcast. I'm your host, Lizzie Lara. Hello, and welcome to our first episode of Waves of Change podcast. Thank you so much for being here. We are starting off with a bang. Today, we're interviewing Olga Murray from Nepal Youth Foundation. Um, I actually first heard about Olga and Nepal Youth Foundation when I was working for an organization called World of Children. And she is some, was someone that the organization had honored um, way before I had gotten there um, and was so impressed by her story. And years later, um, Eric, who she mentions at the end of the podcast, I had met um, way before in a networking event and through nonprofit networks, and he became her executive director. So it's one of those small world stories of the nonprofit sector. Um, and I hope that you love her story. I, you know, it's, it's remarkable. Um, something that we don't really mention during the interview is that um, she started this foundation at 60 years old, and she is now 97, which I just find so incredible. I think a lot of us get so stressed, um, you know, the, feeling like we don't have our life figured out. What are we going to do with our life? What's our purpose? Well, she started at 60 and you will hear the incredible and amazing things that her foundation has accomplished. Um, it's just remarkable. And I know you guys are going to love her story. Um, you know, a couple things that I, I wanted to call out. Um, I think you really have to there's some things that she talks about and I, and, you know, I, I'm a parent and I, I'm sure some of you listening are, and as a parent, you, you kind of think like, how could a parent ever do that? And I think you really have to remind yourself how desperate a parent has to be, um, what desperate situation they must be in to allow, um, these things that sh you'll hear her talk about to happen. Um, so that's something I want to call out is to remind yourself, you know, these parents, they don't have money for, for food, for the, for, you know, basic necessities. And it's really amazing to hear Nepal Youth Foundation come in and, um, and, and strengthen the parents' ability to, to, um, to brighten their ch children's future. Um, Something else I want to call out as as we interview people and organizations focused on international development, some themes that you'll be hearing, um, certainly in Olga's interview, but then later on as we interview other people working in international development, is the importance of letting people from the community lead the programs to identify their own solutions. Um, there are other organizations, not Nepal Youth Foundation, who is doing it right, but other organizations who don't realize that, that that's how you have to do it. Um, there are certainly organizations that come in as foreigners, um, try to tell a community what the solution is, and then leave, and don't, don't really lift up the community, don't, doesn't actually change the community. So you'll hear, um, and I wanted to call that out, that Nepal Youth Foundation is doing it right. They really enable community leaders. They, um, they, their staff is from the community. Um, so that's something I definitely wanted you all to be aware of. And then also, um, I did mention this. I called this out when she mentioned it in the podcast. But the importance of funding women um, is definitely something in international development to note. Um, when you fund women, it there's research done and it's been proven that that money goes back into the families, into the community, um, and it's not wasted. It definitely um, lifts the entire community up when women specifically are funded. Um, and then also the important, a really important theme in international development is sustainable solutions. Um, you'll hear her mention this when she talks about um, the government now taking over the hospital. So I hope that you all enjoy. I will let you dive right into Olga's interview. And thank you again for being with us. So, great. 
Well, Olga, thank you so much for um, joining the podcast today, um, but just wanted to kick off and have you introduce yourself and um, introduce kind of the mission of Nepal Youth Foundation as well. Thank you. Um, I'm Olga Murray and uh, our foundation is called the Nepal Youth Foundation, which I started in 1990, a long time ago, uh, to help children in Nepal um, poor children with uh, education, healthcare, um, all kinds of problems. And uh, we have been thriving ever since. We've helped over 60,000 children in the country. Wow. Uh, and um, uh, we've, it's been the, 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 the work of my life. <laughs> I love that. Um, and can you let us know, how did you first end up in Nepal? Well, uh, when in 1994, uh, uh, 1984, when I was almost 60 years old and loved to travel, I went to trekking there in the mountains. And um, we were uh, walked along these mountain trails, very, very wild, beautiful, beautiful mountainous areas. And the children in the villages walked along with us when we, when we would reach a village and they oh. were the sweetest, the dearest, the funniest, the, the, the most darling children I had, very, very friendly. And um, they, uh, they would hold my hand and we'd walk and they'd laugh Aww. hilariously at my 10 words of Nepali. And, um, and at that time, most children in Nepal didn't go to school. And what they all wanted was to go to school. Hmm. So uh, one night, while we were trekking close to the end of the uh, close to the end of the trip, we were camped uh, in the uh, uh, yard of a little hut on the mountain, and um, uh, the the father of the family invited us in, and there were three children sitting on a dirt floor with a crude wooden board across their laps, and each one had a candle in front of them, and they were doing their homework. They were, wow. they were they were going to school and they had to walk up and down the mountain for a couple of hours a day to get there. And the father was so proud because he was sending his children to school. And I just went back to my sleeping bag and um, somehow or other, um, just like a flash, it just came to me. Okay, Olga, you know what you're going to do with, for the rest of your life. You're going to help Nepali, educate Nepali children. That's oh, incredible. Um, yeah, so I think I think I was, uh, you know, approaching retirement, and I felt that um, probably subconsciously I was looking for something to do with my life, and and I uh, had all this energy. What would I do? And I always knew I'd be working with children, uh, but uh, I didn't know how. I, I was a lawyer, so I thought I might advocate for kids in juvenile court or tutor them or something like that, but. I had never dreamt that I'd go 8,000 miles away and, and uh, start a program uh, for Nepali children. So I went back the next year and um, I, somebody took me to an orphanage with 50 boys. There was an American volunteer there. And um, they were there, again, wonderful children. Nepali children are really special. Mm-hmm. And uh, I asked, the, the boys were six to 16. And I said, what happens to these boys after they reach 16? And he said, well, you know, they have no families. Uh, if they can find a sponsor, they can go to college here. And I said, uh, and uh, how many boys are going to graduate this year? He said, four. And I said, and how much does it cost to send a, a kid to college? He said, you mean everything, room and board and books and everything full support? I said, yeah. He said, $300 a year. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so I said, okay, I'll take four. And that's how the whole thing started. <laughs> oh, wow. So I, your first year, you have yeah. this idea, you say, you know, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And then the second year, you kind of find the opportunity with um, $300 college scholarships. Is that right? Right. Wow. Right. So that's how it had started. And then I went back every year, I was still working uh, I went back every year after that and um, spent 
pretty long periods of time there. And, and when people found out we were giving scholarships, why, you know, we were just inundated. And we had, oh, uh, a lot of disabled kids, blind kids, mm. street kids, beggars. I mean, people nobody else wanted. And we sent them all to school and, and found a place to live. And uh, so that's how it started. And when you started, were you focused on a specific area of Nepal or? Um... Well, we, we were working in Kathmandu with homeless kids, disabled kids, abandoned kids, beggars. Mm. Uh, we, were work, we worked in Kathmandu pretty much. Uh, but these kids were really from all over. The, little, the street kids were usually runaways from, from villages. And um, uh, they were, most of them were from, uh, the valley or outside or outside Kathmandu Valley a lot of them were um and you describe them you know as homeless kids or street kids and I know um you eventually started an orphanage right and so um how did you go from you know four three hundred dollar scholarships to to an orphanage yeah. I'm sure that must have been a, a big yeah. leap well what happened was we had all these kids that nobody wanted uh, and were quite stigmatized in Nepal where, where disabilities, a lot of disabled kids, dis disabled kids, street kids, uh, kids we were taking out of jail because they were living there with their fathers because they had no place else to live, four, five, six-year-old kids. Oh, wow, interesting. And, and, uh, and we couldn't find a boarding school that would take them all. And so uh, we just decided, well, we had to start our own home for children. So we started uh, in 1992, we started uh, a home for boys. And uh, in 1995, uh, we started a home for girls. And um, they've been, it's been, now we have a whole children's village. We have uh, four children's homes, wow. uh, with 20 kids each. Uh, but they're not different kids. They're the same kids. A child will come to us at two, three, four or five, six years old and um, they'll live in, in one house. And then when they reach high school age, they move next door and okay. they're, with us, they're with us till they graduate from high school. And then we send them to college. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, and can you kind of describe the process? Like, I'm sure, like, what were the first steps that, or the hurdles that you had to go through to open, you know, a home for boys and then a home for girls? Like, did you have to find funding at first or was that all you? Well, yes, funding was and is always a problem. <laughs> um, we, uh, we at, at first, the scholarships, I mean, we'd meet these children in terrible, terrible circumstances. You know, somebody would leave two blind, a sister, two blind beggars who were begging at, at the temple at our door mm -hmm. and, and just disappear. And, um, you know, we didn't have, uh, I, uh, we didn't have sponsors for them. Uh, and uh, so, and so at first, I used to lie awake and think whether I had enough money in the bank to support these kids until uh, right. we, we found American sponsors for them. Um, and then, uh, you know, gradually, I got a little more experience at fundraising, and we things started to get more stable. Um, and um, yeah, we 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 rented a house, a big house. That we didn't have our own uh, quarters for our, for our children's homes, and we and we did that until um, five years ago, six years ago, when we uh, when we started um, when we built a village, a children's village, uh, where uh, it's called Olga Puri Village. P U R I means Olga's little oasis. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah, and we have four homes there, and. Uh, an organic vegetable farm. Oh, wonderful. Cows for milk and we have chickens and we have organic vegetables and and also a vocational training center there. Uh, it's out right outside Kathmandu. And uh, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful place to be. Just beautiful view of the mountains, clean air. And these children have everything. They go to excellent private schools and they are, um, they get every advantage 
that uh, that you can think of much much better much more than most Nepali children yeah I mean I can imagine it does sound like an oasis it sounds yeah. wonderful yeah it really is it's 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 a joy to be there uh, so that's that's just one of our projects and then um, and we've had I don't know how many tens of thousands of kids that we've sent to school wow. outside outside of outside of uh, Olga Puri uh, from kindergarten through medical school. I mean, at any one time, we have seven or eight hundred kids under scholarship. Now, uh, we've grown a lot. And then um, in 1998, we started a, a, a program for uh, malnourished children. Uh, mm. a, a good part of, at that time, a good part of the children in Nepal were malnourished, and that was a leading cause of death for children under five. Uh, and um, we, uh, well, the way it, the way it started was was interesting. There was there was one children's hospital in Kathmandu, and uh, we would go there and um, see the child, visit with the children, and see if the parents needed anything for them. Because if the doctor said you need a uh, something expensive like a scan or expensive medicine and they couldn't afford it, they would just take the children home. Sometimes the children would die. Oh, so we would so go sad. there, you know, what do you need? And I was there uh, one time and there was this father who was sitting at the bedside of his uh, daughter, five years old, just skin and bones. And uh, he looked, was looking very sad because the doctor had just told them that he needed this very expensive new antibiotic and uh, he couldn't afford it. So he was going to just leave. So we said, no, 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 that's okay. We'll, we'll pay for it. Um, and so we paid for it. And then I went back a few days later and um, it was empty. And I said to the doctor, where's his child? And he said, well, we discharged her, you know, that uh, antibiotic worked so well. And what happened was she was malnourished and she, so she got an infection, you mm. know, her immune system was shot. He said, uh, and uh, I said, well, how could you do that? She was still, you know, dangerously malnourished. And he said, well, so many children in Nepal are malnourished. We can't, we can't save a bed just for that. And she went home and died. Oh my goodness. That's so and sad. I, I learned about lots of children that this had happened to. So we said, we have to do something about this. And so we got this idea. Uh, we built, we didn't build, we, we got supporters for, we called it a uh, nutritional rehabilitation home. So that children who were in hospital and whose active illness uh, was over, but were still malnourished could come there and get built up to normal health. And then, um, we would, uh, they would be discharged. So we started with just children from the hospitals and um, it was a 10 bed facility. And we used no, no foreign supplements whatsoever. Only, uh, only food that parents could get cheaply and easily in the villages. Right. And while the child was being built up to normal health, the mother, was being educated on uh, nourish, you know, how to feed her children, with uh, how to, you know, um, use locally available grains and vegetables and combine them to maximum nutritional value. Everything about her child's health, you know, the signs of illness, what to do about it, hygiene, and uh, then it, at that time, usually it took about a month, and it was. It was unbelievable, but the children who came and looked like they were going to pop off any minute would go home healthy. You know, we followed World Health Organization standards, healthy according to what the uh, those standards and the mother educated. Yeah, and at that time, it cost $100 for a month's hospitalization for <laughs> mother and child. Uh, now it's more. Now I think it's two or $300. But anyway, so we started with one of those and we have built 17 of those throughout the country. Oh my in, goodness. In so, different areas. And we have tens of thousands of children through that program. And do you think um, the malnutrition was due to like a lack of, of resources or finances or was it an educational issue? Well, a lot of it was education. 
because uh, these people have the facility for uh, to have garden. I mean, most of Nepal is still rural. They right. could have kitchen gardens. And they also didn't really, uh, they prepare the food. They would, you know, cook the hell out of vegetables and uh, throw out the water that they cooked it in. And the hygiene was terrible. And th- it was, it was more, it, a lot of it was, was not, uh, it was ignorance. Yeah, and, lack of uh, education. Right. Uh, so I'm, and, and uh, when we did follow-ups, I don't know how much they're doing now, um, there was something like a um, over 90% success rate. They would visit three times in six months and the child would, and then the mother was educated and then we, we, would, we would train her to train other mothers when she went back to the village. That's uh, incredible. Yeah, on these principles. So, so our board said, well, we can't run 17 hospitals forever. <laughs> most, most of them were 10 bed hospitals. So we got the government to agree to take them over after five years. And we built them and trained the, the people and, um, and supported them for three years. And then the fourth year, uh, it was 50-50. The fifth year, uh, the government paid 75%. We paid 25%. The sixth year, the government took them over. And the 17th one is being taken over this summer from a very rural, poor area. And, uh, uh, and we have stopped this program now. Uh, but we have, you know, the government has started, it's so effective that the government has started building these centers now at the hospitals. So it was a, it was a a great innovation. It seems like a great way to hand it off too. It's not like you just handed it over to them and walked away, but you had this, um, you know, step-by-step plan of um, having the government take them over. That's great. I'm curious too how, um, because you were still living in California and traveling to Nepal, how did you find, um, you know, staff when you like started the orphanage and started the hospital? Um, Was it people that you had already known or, um, you know, how did that process work? Because obviously, you know, these are, um, you know, children in vulnerable situations. You want to make sure you're entrusting them with the, the right care. So I worked with a partner and uh, he lived there most of the time okay. and knew people and um, uh, gradually. And then uh, in uh, 1995, uh, we employed one of the college students that we had sent through college to work for us. He was really our, our second employee. Our driver was our first employee. And he is now president of the foundation. He succeeded. Oh my goodness. What yes. a success story. Yeah, he is uh, brilliant and bold and creative and just perfect. And so he, he runs the whole thing now over there. And uh, he started with us in 1995, um, not, not long after he graduated from college. So that was, uh, and, and, uh, and all our employees are Nepali. We don't have a single foreign employee. That's wonderful. Uh, they're very, you know, we have a terrific staff. They're very smart and creative and devoted to the cause. And um, so they keep things running. I still spend uh, six months a year there when, um, when there's no pandemic. Right. <laughs> I left in March 2020 when the airports around the world were. Beginning. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I haven't been able to go back since, but I was planning to go in February, but uh, Omicron had other ideas. So, so right now I'm planning to go in, uh, in October. Oh, that'll be great. I'm sure that you're eager to get back after so much I time really, away. Yeah. This is the longest I've been away in 37 years. Wow. Mm-hmm. And then I wanted to ask you about, um, I think one of your newest programs, it's the indentured daughters program. If you could speak a little bit about that. Yeah. So we started that in 2000, actually, and it was a it was we found out that in one ethnic group in um, in West Nepal, parents were more or less selling their daughters, little girls, sometimes six, seven, eight, nine years old, <sighs> to work as servants in the homes of of uh, uh, people in Kathmandu and various places, and. Um, for almost nothing, like $40, $50, $60 a year. And the money was not paid to the girls. It was paid to the family. And sometimes that's all the money the family had. I mean, 
they they were desperate. They uh, they loved their daughters, but they they needed the money. And uh, these girls and the employers always promised that they would send the girls to school and treat them like their own daughters. But very few of them ever attended school, and they were routinely beaten and worked from dawn until late at night. And that's how they spent their whole childhoods. Uh, the contract was renewed year after year after year. And uh, so we found out about it in a late 1989, it was, um, 99, excuse me. And, uh, and we found out about it through the newspaper. Apparently, a lot of people in Nepal didn't even know this was going on. And um, so Soma and I were at the office and, and he was reading the newspaper and he said, Olga Didi, do you know what's going on in my country? And he started to, he, the newspaper said, okay, the labor contractors were, were coming to, uh, for, at a certain time at a festival in February, they were coming to um, buy girls for, for, to, act, to act as servants. And I was, and these girls are bonded away. I mean, they have to work for that year and, uh, and they work not for that year, but a lot of them work for their whole childhoods. And um, so he, uh, he, he, he went, he took the bus to that area and he spoke to certain parents, quite a few parents. And they said, fathers actually, well, you know, why, why are you doing this to your daughters? And they said, we have to do it. We have no money. We have nothing to live on. And uh, this, is, this is the only money we have. And, and these people say they're gonna take care of our daughters. So Som said, his name is Som Panaru. He said, well, look, uh, I, if, you, if you bring your daughter home for the festival in February, um, and, and if, you, if you leave her home, I will make it worth your while. I'll be back in February. So he came back, went back again and in February and all 27 fathers he talked to had brought their daughters home for the festival. And they said, okay, if we leave our daughters home now, what are you gonna do for us? And we hadn't ma actually made a decision. We talked about it We said, well, we're gonna say, okay, well, how much money did you get from the labor contractor? Here it is, what we should do. But he went around and talked to the uh, people in the villages, mostly the mothers who said, whatever you do, do not give our husbands uh, money because uh, alcoholism was rife in the area. Mm. And uh, they said, they'll just drink it up in no time at all and we'll have nothing. And so they, you know, he talked to lots of people and they finally came to an agreement that uh, uh, the Tarus loved pork products. And so what they would do was we would buy a piglet for each family if they left, let their daughter stay home. And then they could raise the piglet and uh, they'd get about the same amount of money that they got for their daughter's labor or even, uh, even more sometimes. Uh, so um, all, all, the, all the fathers agreed to the deal and we started to, um, we started to uh, save the girls that way. So that's, that began in 2000 and by, and it's instead of just, instead of just saying, uh, okay, we're the big white saviors, we're gonna go in and save these girls. We decided from the beginning that we would train them in advocacy to end the practice. Mm. We did that so that, you know, they, as, as they came home, they were trained in, uh, to do leaflets and play, street plays. And um, we got lots of publicity, TV. We had a, a radio program every night in the area, every Sunday night, where the girls themselves would talk about uh, how they had suffered during their, when they were servants. We arranged for them to meet. Um, you know, high politicians, prime minister, everybody, and lots of publicity. Uh, and if, and then we went on rescue missions 
to save the girls. And we would go to a family and say, we know you have this girl working for you and this is illegal. She's only nine years old and you have to let her go. And if they didn't, we filed loads and loads of lawsuits against the family. Anyway, and these girls, they turned out to be the most passionate, active, intelligent kids you have ever seen. And they were, they were really the ones who did it. So it took 13 years from 2000 to 2013 until the pressure was too great and the government outlawed the practice. And we saved, we brought 13,000 girls home wow. in that period. And um, so now the practice is over and the girls themselves have formed a, um, they formed a, a nonprofit that is one of the biggest and most powerful in the area. Wow. Yeah, so it's, it's been a very satisfying, and then and the uh, government outlawed it in 2013. It took 13 years, yes. Um, and uh, so we just withdrew from that project in 2020 because even after the practice was over uh, uh, and all the girls were placed, the girls were either placed in school or vocational training, uh, but even after the practice was over, if the girls like graduated from high school and had nothing to do, they'd be married off. Right. And so we started a major vocational training program for them, which is still going on. Wow, that's incredible. So your foundation pretty much um, stopped indentured servitude in Nepal. That's incredible. Yeah, in the target community. Yes. Uh, and, and now it's illegal. It's an illegal practice, and and of course these girls are so empowered now that uh, that there's no way that uh, that anybody could get away with that. Right. I love to. I think it speaks to the importance of having um, you know people from Nepal working for the foundation. It's just such a creative solution instead of I think um, you know if people that weren't connected to the community yeah, yeah. would come in, yeah. they probably would have just thrown money at it. But the creative yeah. solution of of the piglet yeah um, yeah yeah incredible and it was a goat because there was some disease going around with <laughs> but it was um, actually that's one of the main uh, characteristics of our foundation is is <clears throat> the nepalis they know what they need and they know right. how to, and they know how to do it i don't think any foreigner could have done this really I mean, you had to be, you had to know what the psyche and the, the customs and how you could do it, how far you could go. And, and we had somebody, uh, this wonderful, wonderful guy. He lived there in that community for 10 years without a car, just a motorcycle. He was beloved by everybody. And, uh, and he, he was, uh, I mean, that's the way you do it. You just can't go in and throw a lot of money at the problem. It doesn't work. Exactly. And also what you spoke to about not giving the money to the fathers, that's something I've heard a lot in development work about, you know, um, if you give money to women and to mothers, it goes back into the families and the communities. And Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. True. Well, um, I know you mentioned briefly COVID, but I'm just curious, you know, um, you know, COVID and the pandemic threw a wrench in, in everything. Um, and just curious how that affected your foundation and how you guys have had to, to pivot during the pandemic. Well, COVID was, uh, at first, at first COVID did not affect, uh, did not affect Nepal at all. And oh, everybody good. had some kind of magical immunity. But last year, um, there was huge surge of it. And it was, it was really, terrible because uh, everything closed down. I mean, there was total lockdown, not the kind of lockdown we have here, but you couldn't even go out. And so many people who were, lots of people are just dependent on day wages there. They couldn't work. There mm -hmm. was hunger. Kids couldn't go to school. Uh, it, was, it was really very, very, very hard on the poorest people. And uh, so we, well, we had several programs. We had uh, nourishment programs. We, we um, had kitchens. We established uh, kitchens all over where we'd cook good, fresh food, nourishing food, and, and serve lunches at schools. 
we um, made uh, literally tons of this very, very nourishing supplement mm. uh, that, uh, made out of local materials uh, that we distributed. We're still doing that. Uh, and um, on education, we started something which I just think was really ingenious. All the schools were closed and the, the rich kids who went to private schools and had computers could study online. Right. But, but the vast majority didn't and, and couldn't go to school. So we went out to the villages in, in a rural area and we educated children in the government curriculum for $10 a year a piece. Uh, hello? Yes. <laughs> oh, you're there. Okay. Um, so what we did was we went into the community and we, we sort of asked if we could use a, 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 a community building, maybe, a, you know, some sort of center, right. maybe even a barn, uh, you know, whatever it was where children could gather. And then um, we uh, provided each center with a computer and a screen and teaching material. And the teachers were the government school teachers who were, school was closed. So the teacher didn't cost anything. They were, they were just doing their job and we trained them and how to train groups of children by computer. And kids would come 10, at a, 10 or 15 at a time to this venue and be trained in the, and be, and, and be trained in the government cu curriculum with the computer screen. And uh, we, I think we, we, we had schooling for 9,000 kids. Wow. With that program during the pandemic. So they didn't fall so far behind. That's um, incredible. And that's outside of the- um, the, the In the village, yeah. right? Yeah. Wow. yeah, yeah. So that was important. Uh, and then uh, one of our, uh, the nutrition center in Kathmandu, which has 24 beds, uh, we're, that's one thing, that's one we're not turning over to the government. We're keeping that because it's also a, a center where we train doctors and nurses and people who deal with children in nutrition from all over the country. Um, and um, the, um, we turned that into a, a um, um, isolation facility for like, kids who lived in orphanages or in, in uh, situations where they could spread it very quickly mm -hmm. in communal, they would come there for, I mean, it, it was a semi-medical facility anyway. So we had nurses and, and people who knew about uh, medical issues. Uh, and also uh, women who came back from working in, abroad with their children and working in the Gulf countries, like nannies and so forth. And that was also used for them as an isolation center. So we, we were very, very active during the pandemic and in, in helping people get through it. Now, you know, as, we're, as anywhere else, it's, in fact, I understand that, uh, that Nepal is 90% vaccinated. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, but the vaccines are from China or Russia or wherever they can get them. So right. I'm not sure how reliable they are, but that's good to know. Yeah, at least it's something. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, on the, the other side, I would love to hear, you know, what you're excited about thinking, you know, in the future for the foundation, um, you know, what's coming up that excites you. Um, I heard some sort of news about maybe getting a transformational gift, um, but would love to hear, you know, upcoming what you're excited about. Mm -hmm. Well, um, we have a uh, uh, well, one of the things we're going to emphasize a lot is vocational training. We've got a lot of experience with it. And it's not, it, it doesn't sound very exciting, but in Nepal, it's extremely important because a good part of the young men in the country leave the country to work in the Gulf states where they're terribly exploited, sometimes come back in body bags, and they're gone from from, uh, from their families, from their children and their wives for years and years and years and years because there are no jobs in Nepal. And the thing is there are jobs, but there, there aren't people with the skills to, to, uh, you know, uh, to do them. 
And uh, so uh, it, uh, Nepal has an open border with India and Indians come across and take all the skilled jobs. And so we're training uh, young people, men and women in the building trades and various other things where, they, where we're sure they can get employment. So that's an important, that's an important aspect. But we also have a, uh, uh, we're going to start two very, very, very important and exciting programs to try to uh, tackle the problem of uh, untouchability. A lot of Americans aren't familiar with this, but it's mm -hmm. part of the, the Hindu, the Hindu um, practice is uh, uh, for, I don't know, a thousand years, 2000 years, there's been a caste system so that you're born into a particular social group. It's called a caste and it's occupation based. And the lowest occupations are, are the lowest caste, like cleaning toilets, getting rid of the carcasses of dead animals, getting, catching rats, all kinds of, uh, you know, being servants, all kinds of things. And, and for, for centuries, millenniums, there was no way you could get out of that system. You were not allowed to be educated. You were not allowed to um, uh, have close contact. You were not allowed to touch a person of a higher caste. So now that system has been illegal in Nepal and India for uh, since the 50s, but it still exists to some extent in the villages, uh, mostly in the villages, even, even, uh, even in, in the cities uh, to some extent. Uh, so, uh, and, and these people are oppressed beyond what you can imagine. I mean, in, in many, many situations, you, they can't enter your house. They can't right. touch you. If, if they, if they if use a cup or something that you provide them with water, you have to sterilize the cup. Um, they can't, they can't um, in many cases, they can't go to the temple. They can't use the same water source. I can't tell you the, the degree of oppression that these people suffer. And so there are, in Nepal, there are about 3 million, they call they were called untouchables, uh, but now they're called Dalits, D-A-L-I-T. Hmm. And um, there have been all kinds of programs to try to uplift them. And there are a number of educated Dalits, but not nearly, not nearly enough. So, uh, so we want to do something about this. So the first thing we're going to do is uh, starting this summer, we are going to choose 20 young Dalis, I hope mostly women, who've just graduated from high school and have done well on the college entrance exams, bring them to Kathmandu and put them in law school. Wow. And provide them with all kinds of uh, extra facilities that they need to teach them about computers and good English and um, um, advocacy and the history of their of their uh, oppression and so forth, uh, and train them to be uh, advocates for the Dalits because the laws are there, they're just not enforced. Right. Uh, yeah, and so, and then when they graduate, maybe start a, a group like the NAACP Legal Defense Fund so that they, they'll be like a law firm devoted to this. So that's one aspect of it. The second aspect is, we have identified a Dalit community in East Nepal where we like to work. It's 932 families. And even among the Dalits, there's a caste system. And there are mm -hmm. high Dalit castes and low Dalit castes. And this is among the lowest, 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 lowest. Um, actually, it's a couple of the two or three castes, um, but uh, a lot of them are the rat catcher caste that has been there their caste occupation. And now they're pretty much day laborers and they're close to the bottom in everything you can think of. I don't know if there's a single high school graduate in that community, in education, in child malnutrition, in housing, in um, maternal death rates, in um, alcoholism, in ab uh, domestic abuse, everything is it's the most terrible, difficult, difficult community. So uh, we plan to go in there and do what we can to, uh, to um, 
you know, uplift their situation. And I think we're very well positioned to do it because we've had a lot of experience in all these areas in nutrition, in education, in vocational training. And um, we also started the first child counseling center in Nepal. And um, these people have a very low self-image, which is one of the problems. Um, mm. And um, and the idea would be it'll take it will take decades. It's not something that we can count on doing uh, fast. Um, and then the law students will go into this community in the in their spare time, and um, will learn about this. The you know the although they'll all be dollies, they may be not quite as low a caste. They'll learn about their problems. They'll they'll get ideas on how to help them. And then the Dalit community itself will see young people who are Dalits uh, acting as lawyers or, or lawyers to be. I love uh, which that. Would be, yeah, which would be. A, so that's our, that's, our, uh, that's our plan for the near future. I love that. It goes back to the, the same community helping the community, right? That they yes, come from. Yeah, yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that I'm very excited about both, both of these programs. I think uh, they'll do a lot of good and uh, it'll take a long time, but I think, I mean, my hope is that this could be like a, like a model because there are three million dollars in Nepal and hundreds of millions in India. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, so I hope that um, um, I have a lot of hope for this program. That's exciting. Great. Well, um, starting to wrap up, just want to ask you um, how listeners can can help the foundation. Um, what needs do you, do you guys currently have? Well, of course, we need funds. Right. Uh, yeah, that's 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 our major thing. We don't we don't take volunteers uh, because it's very difficult to adjust to uh, another culture like that in the time that volunteers have, and uh, so. We need we need donations to help with these with these projects and um, um, you know if you go online and look up Nepal Youth Foundation there's a, a way that you can make donations um, or you can call our uh, executive director Eric Talbert at four one five three three one eight five eight five and we're kind of hoping we come to the attention of some big donor like Mackenzie Scott or somebody like that who, <laughs> uh, who will, you know, who wants to really make a difference uh, with a with an organiz organization that's very solid and um, and does really good work for, you know, for for a very small amount of money in Western terms. Um, so yes, donations would be very, very, very welcome. So it's Nepal Youth Foundation, um, www.nepalyouthfoundation.org, and you can make a donation online. I love that. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, just ending, um, we'd love to end with some rapid fire questions, and these are just completely fun about you. Um, so are you ready? I am ready. <laughs> okay. Your favorite place in the world and be specific as possible. My favorite place in the world is Olgapuri village uh, in, in outside Kathmandu where the most wonderful, wonderful children live. That's where I'm happiest. I love it. It's your oasis. It literally is your oasis. Correct. Correct. <laughs> um, the last book that you read. The last book that I read, um, I, let's see, I think, um, um, oh, I, I, I'm a big reader. I read, I read a lot of books. <laughs> um, um, let's see, let's see. Uh, I, I read a book by Roger Angel, uh, who is a New Yorker writer, uh, his essays, which I just loved. He has one called um, This Old Man that I've read three times that is, is just wonderful. Uh, so I read a lot. I like uh, British spy novels and, uh, and, um, and I'm very interested in politics. So I read quite a bit about politics. My, my bedtime reading is the New York Times every night. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little light reading. 
Right. <laughs> um, and the show, the TV show you're currently watching, if you're watching any. No, I don't. I don't have TV. <laughs> um, I'm doing too much reading for TV. That's good. Right. Yeah. And um, how do you take your coffee? Do you drink coffee? Oh, I am a coffee fiend. <laughs> I, I make uh, uh, the first thing I do when I get up in the morning, I go to the kitchen and make myself drip coffee um, and um, and ground coffee and, and and use the drip and put some milk in it and put it in the um, microwave for 30 seconds and go back to bed and <laughs> and listen to uh, morning edition on NPR. That's my morning. I love it. And I have to ask, do they have good coffee in Nepal? Yes, they're growing there. They when I first went there the, for the last first twenty years, they didn't have any coffee. Yeah, uh, oh, you just drank tea, hmm. uh, and and you could get coffee in little envelopes. You know, a few granules of coffee. <laughs> it was you, now the coffee houses all over, and they're they're growing and roasting their own coffee, and they make excellent coffee now. Oh, awesome! Well, I'm happy for you then. You don't have yeah, to go without yeah. your coffee when you're there. <laughs> That's true. Um, and then last question, your favorite quote. My favorite quote. Um, let me think. I think it's the Dalai Lama. Uh, it's something like, actually, I have a, a T-shirt that has it. Hold on and <laughs> get that T-shirt so I don't misquote it. Um, it's only got six words on it but it's uh, an important thing. Uh, let me see here. It's something like, be kind, have fun. Uh, let's see. Well, I can't get back and put my hands on it. But it's okay. It's, I put you on the spot here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> be good, have fun. And um, I've forgotten what the other thing is. Yeah. Um, I, I, I admire the Dalai Lama a lot. I love that. Well, those are good. Be good, be kind, have fun. I love yes. that. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Olga. This was um, such a pleasure speaking with you and hearing about all the incredible work that you are doing. And um, I'm excited for, for everyone to listen to, to your story. Thank you very, very much. I appreciate it. I enjoyed the interview. <laughs> Same. Take care. Uh, okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Waves of Change podcast. I'm your host, Lizzie Lara. I would love if you would follow or subscribe our podcast, or would you leave a rating or review? Five stars is our favorite. That would help others find us and we'd really appreciate it. If you are active on social media, please follow us at Waves of Change Podcast on Instagram. Even more, if you would share this episode on your stories, that would be wonderful. If you have suggestions or want to recommend an organization I should interview, email us at wavesofchangepodpod at gmail.com. Thank you. I'll see you next time.